Hi, this is Mel Fulton, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Literati Glitterati. Championing stylish wordsmiths and sterling conversation, it's a weekly book show that loves a good story well told. Literati Glitterati is broadcast live on Triple R each Wednesday from midday till 1pm. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. I'm Mel Fulton and today we have another primo lineup of some of the country's most stylish wordsmiths. Uh, we're going to talk about their books, their stories, we're going to talk reading and we're going to pinpoint you, oh we're going to point you sorry, in the direction of some top books that you can get your hands on from you know the local library or maybe your independent bookshop if you like. I would like to pay my respects to the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation to bundle the great creation spirit and I would also like to express my solidarity with the people of Palestine at this despairing time. The colonial project is an ongoing one but this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Um, Thank you hugely to Samira and the score. It's delightful to have her back after a month away. Um, Today on the show... Max Easton, podcaster, zine maker, author of The Magpie Wing and his new book, Paradise Estate. Also joining us is debut novelist uh, Jessica Zan Mayu, author of a fantastic new novel that asks what happens when your favourite books don't like you. Um, it's going to be a great show. Triple R. I am delighted to introduce my first guest to the show uh, this afternoon, Max Easton. He's a writer from Sydney. He is the creator of Barely Human, a zine and podcast series that explores underground music's ties to counterculture and subculture. His first book, The Magpie Wing, was longlisted for the Miles Franklin Award. Paradise Estate is his second book. It's a kind of sequel to The Magpie Wing, although you don't have to read one. Uh, you don't have to read them in order to kind of have a meaningful reading experience. They're both out now through Giramondo. Welcome to the show, Max. It's so nice to have you. Hey, Mel. Thanks for having me on. What a treat. Max, can you start by telling us a little bit about the title of this book? It's called Paradise Estate. What does that mean? What's its significance? Um, well, I guess it's sort of a riff on the housing crisis and um, the book is sort of set in a share house over 2022. So it's a... Um, yeah, coming together a few people trying to form a new share house in the in the wake of it all, and um, yeah, I mean it's also a television personality song, which was um, <laughs> something I was listening to a lot of the time. Yeah, but uh, yeah, yeah, riff on the housing crisis, paradise estate, I'd say. Yeah, absolutely. So you've got, I mean, the book opens with uh, Helen, who readers will recognise from the previous book, The Magpie Wing, and uh, she's kind of um, at a little bit of a loose end. She's gone through a breakup. She's looking to kind of um, to move out of her place, and she comes across this this share house, I mean, sorry, this house that is for lease that's got maybe like four signs up in the front yard um, from all different real estate agents. It's like the only house that's kind of freestanding and it's surrounded by apartment buildings and all of the balconies from these apartment buildings kind of look out into the front yard. They've got <laughs> sort of no privacy. There's no real village in this in this suburb. You have to walk quite a long way to get to, you know, the supermarket or to, to any kind of, you know, the post office or anywhere where you might go about your business. And the house is like... It's a it's a classic share house with you know like a, a second a toilet out the back a shed that gets turned into a bedroom slash kind of archiving space for one of the housemates and you've got all of these people sort of put in there together. Can you tell us about about this house? Because I I hear that you spotted it 
you know, in real life, in your day-to-day, stumbled across it and it ignited, sparked something for you. Yeah, yeah, it's a real house in a suburb called Holston Park, which is sort of um, on the outskirts of the inner west of Sydney and sort of butts into where the sprawl really starts kicking into the towards Western Sydney. Um, and I feel like it's like one of those suburbs which is sort of dime a dozen now in major cities. I'm sure there's like a half dozen or more um, Melbourne equivalents, yeah. sort of the edges where it's sort of the the apartments are coming through, but there's all the old neighbourhood houses are there and the, um, <clears throat> I'd say the, what do you call them? Yeah, like the old corner store, the old fish and chip shop, the old, um, the old green grows from the corner are all, like little houses that people have bought and turned into a cute little um, apartment for themselves. Or, um, yeah, like in Holston Park, there's a few real estate agents and um, architecture firms mm. in old corner stores, which is like a great um, tragic irony. Yeah. Um, Places yeah, where you can hot yeah, desk. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, it was a real – that house being in this neighbourhood, which is like pretty close to where I live, and when I stumbled across it and it's sort of – yeah, right on this street, one of the last freestanding houses on this street in this suburb, which is really, um, yeah, kind of fascinating for its like the way that it's cleared out anything that was interesting through that area. Um, yeah, for higher density housing and, um, you know, you can drive to the Woolworths down the road. Yeah. <laughs> you can drive 10 minutes if you need to. It's like that kind of setup. Um, but, yeah, and once I saw that house, it's just like, oh, yep, that's – there's your um, analogy for current day living. You've got apartments, everyone's looking in. And <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it also added up. Sorry, Max, keep going. It also added up to that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's been described. I saw there's a great quote from Madeline Gray who was on the show a couple of weeks ago on the cover of the book that says it's kind of like a monkey grip novel for the Mark Fisher generation, which, which I feel... Um, I mean, knocks on something, and it got it got me thinking about all of these people who were kind of chucked in this house together, um, and um, and how that has come to be, and how uh, the sort of the brutal reality of of the way we live now, and, and the fact that um, you know it's. Uh, it's not so much a share house novel; it's a novel about um, a whole bunch of people who who lived who lived together and who were sort of trying to make it work. Um, can you tell us a bit about those characters and, and who they are and, and how they're sort of jostling with one another? Yeah. Um, it's a real assortment of um, people you probably come across in your day-to-day um, with any sort of vague interest in some form of subculture. It's like musical or art or um, uh, art form X, Y, Z. Um, and some leftist politics type stuff. So it's kind of a mixture of different people who are, you know, only a few of them know each other before they move in. And um, they're always really bizarre share house scenarios where you're sort of coming in on the vaguest notion of um, some someone sort of vouched for and, um, <laughs> yeah, having to come in together with six new people and then coexist. So it's like, uh, yeah, it's like the Sonny who lives in the shed is a... Um, punk musician and sort of wannabe DIY archivist, kind of putting together um, collections of things in their shed. Uh, Helen from the first book, who sort of hasn't really thought about her artistic interests or any interests for a long time because she's been going through a lot of difficult things. 
um, the couple Nathan and Alice, who are a um, sort of socialist couple, uh, part-time academics or training academics. Uh, Beth, who's like a young bartender trying to get her life back on track after breaking a leg. Um, who else? And Dale, who sort of flits around, kind of comes in as a spare. And then um, Rocco, a part-time Italian anarchist, part-time rugby league player at the end of his career, kind of comes in towards the end. So, yeah, yeah. yeah Punks, an assortment. Mm, punk, socialist, artist, people trying to sort of a, a garden and get by, low-income earners mm. like Helen works at a, um, at a cinema, you know, Beth is working behind a bar, Rocco is a scaffolder, um, but like you said, a part-time, a part-time footy player. Um, do you – and all of this is sort of unfolding in the very real time of, of 2022. So The mm. Magpie Wing, uh, for those who haven't read it, sort of follows quite an extended um, timeline of about 15 years or something like that. And then this book – this book is written, yeah, really in real time as, you know, uh, COVID kind of continues to amble on and there's climate disaster after climate disaster and the election happens. Um, can you tell us about the decision to write the book within this kind of this short window of time? Yeah, it was kind of... Um, it just kind of came naturally in a way because that's where I sort of ended writing The Magpie Wing because that was a 25-year timeline, more give or take, um, and sort of had that chance where the pandemic began and the lockdown started happening when I was, a, you know, I think I was like at the second draft point. So it was like, this is an, either an opportunity to set a, make it a 2019 period piece <laughs> to avoid it all, or I can like really take a risk and rewrite everything and try and like, yeah, take that risk of being the most cringy person on earth and talk about people washing their hands and shit. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but the process of doing that was really thrilling, you know. Like, well, what was it? What was it like? Because I imagine, you know, it's kind of like um, the. I guess writing in real time, it must be incredible in a way of kind of processing things, but also sort of exhausting in that you don't have that uh, perspective. Things are kind of rolling yeah. out as you go, and I guess you're like. Sorry, I keep doing a terrible thing for radio and putting my palm up in front of my face, but it's like you're riding while you're facing the wall, you yeah. know, like you can't stand back and, and get that perspective. What what did it mean for you, like the way the way you did it, the way you pieced it together, or even the way you edited it at the end? Mm. Well, I mean, the hardest part too, because I had all these notes, like I just took all these handwritten notes through the year and started forming the characters around that, Um and coming back to it, it would be stuff like early in the year I'd sort of predicted that Ukraine would win Eurovision and Russia would get disqualified. Like, And I'd already written that as some kind of speculative thing, but then it happened. Yeah, wow. <laughs> so it's sort of like, oh, like you can edit it and make yourself, like all the characters really all-knowing, but I had to like kind of keep, yeah, like things like that were really difficult. It's like when do I decide to rewrite it to give them some perspective and when do I want to be like, take the risk of like this is going to be a very august 2022 opinion to have yeah and then <laughs> yeah and then like the discipline then to be like okay it's going to come out in 2023 and it could be quite embarrassing or have dated horrifically but yeah it was like really like wanted to be disciplined about like this is the document of 2022 in that sort of way and yeah it was what kind of worth taking the risk to be a little bit cringy um to just like have that crack yeah, I mean it's certainly it's certainly not cringy. It's um it's 
Gosh, it's difficult to kind of subscribe. It's kind of difficult to describe. It's quite meditative in some ways, and it's also um, it's also brutal and and alive and um, and. And so I, I imagine, you know, for people who are listening to this show and people who listen to the station, it will cut very, very close to the bone about about the way that we, the way that we do live, and the way that we sort of balance um, pushing for something better, but living mm. hopelessly, and you know, kind of uh, living in our reality. If that if that makes sense. Um, I, um, and I guess that's you know the the members of the share house come up with this idea to to call the house paradise estate and to kind of try and live in a way where they can support each other and uh, suggest sort of a different way of life and that has sort of varying kind of consequences and plays out in different ways. Can you tell us a bit about that about um, about that kind of plot point? Yeah. Yeah. Um... That was sort of—I can't remember where that came from, but it was definitely something that's on my mind all the time. It's like, how do we do things better um, in this world where it's sort of—it's difficult to like push out of that kind of like, um, you know, I have to work this much to make this amount of money, and then I have this much time to spend to do something I like, which, um, you know, for a lot of people, it's like, oh, it'd be nice if that made me some money too, and I could work less, and that sort of like balance. Whereas, like, I'm always thinking about. Uh, different forms of, I guess, like autonomous living. Um, and so for a share house of six to try and figure out all their own various forms of autonomous living that could come together, but they all have hugely different sensibilities and uh, passions, even though their beliefs are pretty close. Um, so, yeah, of course, like the academic wants to create a commune in the share house, but, you know, their parents are quite wealthy, so they can disappear at any time. Yeah. So the risk of the commune, <laughs> you know, the risk of the commune isn't like someone like Helen who's like, whatever, just go, I just need a place to live. Um, and it doesn't matter what the place stands for politically, but I'm happy to go along with it if that reduces the amount of arguments in their house. And, um, you know, it's like those sort of balance of the compromises that you make um, and the dreams you're kind of like trying to come up with to, yeah, to kind of get it together and, yeah, in um, yeah, in a world that's like crisis after crisis and challenge after challenge, and 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 in a world as well where um, kind of countercultural gestures or um, gestures isn't the right word, but where the counterculture is constantly being kind of subsumed by the broader culture and diluted, and everything that you know, these people are trying to sort of to live with integrity and to express who they are but everything that they go to do you know they have these fantastic conversations in the house about like what the role is you know um of of rugby league and its origins and and where it is now yeah. um can you can you tell us about can you tell us about that like what have rugby league and punk got in common um that was sort of like a uh kind of a lot at, at one point and not so much now <laughs> But actually, arguably, probably a similar sort of story, you know, like um, like rugby league specifically in the book is talked about as a um, it was a born of a pay dispute with rugby union, which is why there's two rugbies, <clears throat> and um, so it was kind of this trade union activity in the north of England which created this uh, other sport, um, and then this is like in 1895, 
and the histories of both sport have kind of like gone on these pathways where rugby union stayed embedded in um, like quite wealthy circles and rugby league kind of started uh, building alongside an aspirant working class. Um, so rugby league now is like a very middle-class sport with working-class ties. Um, so punk music was like I feel or the way that I feel it, like more as a tradition than as a genre, was always kind of about um, sort of reshaping the type of music you're making and reshaping the type of industry you play to. So rather than having to be um, beholden to radio or, or major record labels to get your music made, you can just make it yourself. Um, rugby league was similar, like the, the working class players in North of England, all they wanted to do was get paid for when they got injured because they couldn't work, whereas the wealthy players could just, you know, they didn't need to work. Um, so that was they created their own sport um, in order to pay pay themselves and, you know, different paths, but it's that kind of like, yeah, 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 that sort of create the independent playing field for you to, to, to live and create through. Yeah, yeah, and then... You know, in the in the same way, uh, yeah, it, things get you pick and choose, and things um, <laughs> some things get brought to a broader audience, and other things do not. And uh, mm. <laughs> you know, and people who who pioneer and who do interesting things are then you know get <laughs> get left behind, at least from a sort of earning in an earning sense, or that it's not recognised. Mm. And um, we have these, you know, black mould. Uh, share houses with outdoor dunnies and and grass that won't that won't grow vegetable patches. Triple R. Max, you've written this great book about about people who live in this share house. How much of it is drawn from your own life experience? Like how clo- how close does this cut for you? Um, I, a lot of it's really personal. Um. It's sort of it's it's difficult because in my mind uh, none of it is, but then yeah, my partner just finished reading it last night, um, and she was like, "Oh yeah, that I remember when that happened." I was like, "Oh yeah, that did happen." <laughs> and then, but in every, everyone's lives, I've sort of in that book, I've li- I've kind of lived as well. Like I was a part time rugby league player um, up until my mid twenties. Um, I worked as a scaffolder, as a labourer, then I worked as a research scientist, like Alice did. I've sort of worked as a part time tutor and. I've, been a writer and I've been a musician and I've like you know tried doing my own like tape projects and zine projects like Sonny has and um so yeah it would be dishonest of me to say that it's not drawn from my (laughs) personal experience but um but I feel like lucky in a way that I've had so many experiences and um you know not that I've always chosen to work all these different jobs but um They've sort of like given me a really interesting perspective on on work and uh, the people that do those kinds of jobs. Um, so yeah, it was it was really fun and useful in a way to like draw together all these different parts of me over the past you know thirty five years or whatever and um, split them into characters, even though they kind of become a bit archetypal maybe. But it's sort of yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I found it easier to do that than to just like you know imagine someone as a lawyer. <laughs> I don't yeah. know, you know, I don't know the ins and outs or the details, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as somebody who, um, you know, who who has lived all of these, you know, lived all of these lives and participated in these share houses in in all sorts of ways, and who I guess you know, like 
publishing a book like this will be read by by your your peers and your people you said your partner just finished the book last night like how are people how are people responding to it yeah pretty good um the only yeah everyone seems to have really enjoyed it with this one the first time around it was sort of had a bit of a more of a mixed response but this one just seems to be a bit yeah, I don't know. It's I'm a much better writer than I was the first time around. You know, have I, you, I don't have to Google everything. <laughs> <laughs> have you got yeah. folks that you lived with who who can recognise the circumstances and who can remember who can remember like certain house parties or ideas of taking over pubs or certain you know like live uh, I don't know hardcore gig recordings and and these kinds of things. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, but you know, I haven't had any feedback, which is like that was me. Yeah, because none of them, none of them is anyone in particular, but. But, you know, like, that's the nature of um, – and the personal risk, I guess, you take of writing fiction is, like, you're really putting yourself on the page and um, I hope that everyone still likes you afterwards. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I guess that's kind of um, – you know, and, and the, the payoff as well is that, you know, you hope, and with this book I certainly did, that, it, uh, I, you know, it's an uh, – an, empathy building exercise or without sounding too overly earnest or you know um an exercise in reminding uh you know uh, people of our humanity and the way that we live and the way that we mm. um and how we should live and and I, I was wondering about you know um you're somebody who makes all kinds of things across all different meaning uh all, across all different mediums why why is fiction the most powerful one for this story you know yeah um yeah, really good question, and I guess because I because I wrote essays for a long time. Yeah, and did a lot of music writing, and I, you know I try to like bring ideas together in that way. But I mean, you have to be very. I mean, you don't have to, but like you do have to be like pretty solid in what you're saying, and you need to have a concise thesis when you're writing an essay, and it has to be quite clear. You can't just like hand wave around. Um, but I liked with the novel that you can kind of pose ideas and then pose the counterpoint and you don't need to resolve it. Like you can just leave these things hanging and that becomes part of the character's tension. Um, so it's like this novel's like much more satirical than the first one, um, but in more subtle ways. Um, and a lot of it just sort of like making fun of myself. Like whenever I've come up with some like, you know, I've gone through all my notes and like found all these essay ideas and like, oh, that's <laughs> terrible. <laughs> Like, like, how was I going to argue that point? And it's like, okay, I'll put that in the novel and then, you know, kind of make it a little bit more insufferable and that'll be a Nathan essay. And, um, yeah, so it's, yeah, I mean, that's like, it sort of goes back to your past point too. It's like, uh, it's more making fun of myself than it is making fun of anyone else. It's (laughs) all about, yeah, yeah. most wonderful and insufferable qualities boiled down, which is very much the experience of living in a share house, you know, and then you you add in like a flea-ridden cat and everybody's sort of varying and, um, you know... uh, opinions about the best way to 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 deal with this cat or <laughs> you deal with you know weeks and weeks of of terrible weather and of rain and of mold spreading or the house feeling wet or you add in you know the idea of having a house party or a live recording gig and then you see sort of what happens <laughs> yeah totally just like dropping little bombs in <laughs> in the in the in the house yeah 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 max 
thank you so much for joining us on the show. Um, I really loved the book. I loved The Magpie Wing as well. And um, if people listening would like to read it, it's called Paradise Estate. It's out now through Giramondo. You can also pick it up from the library. Triple R. It is my great pleasure to introduce to the studio uh, our second guest on Literati Glitterati this week. Jessica Zan Mayu is a writer of fiction, non-fiction and poetry. She holds a PhD in creative writing from the University of Melbourne, but the girl is her debut novel. Welcome to the show, Jessica. Thank you so much for having me, Mel. It is a total pleasure. Um, I loved reading this book. Thank you very much for writing it. Um, I think it asks some some pretty essential essential questions about what it means to kind of uh to find yourself and um what it means when the little markers that sort of guide you on your way let you down so so terribly um I'm going to give a bit of context but the girl um is about a woman named Girl who was born on the day her parents and grandmother emigrated to Australia. Uh, her mother held her perv- her pelvic muscles so that her daughter may enjoy the privilege of an Australian vi- uh, an Australian visa. Is kind of how the the family mythology goes. Um, girl is an overachiever, a good girl, um, and increasingly burned out by the sexism, racism, classism that she experiences as a person in the world, but particularly as a, a young woman writer and as an academic um she finds sylvia plath's work and the bell jar when she's in university and absolutely adores it until she stumbles across this you know until she realizes it's horribly racist and feels kind of despised by it and she's jostling with that throughout the book um and throughout her sort of phd research um and and this project that she's set up for herself which she calls the post-colonial novel uh and she's gone to scotland on a on a fellowship to work on this on this post-colonial novel and she's sort of trying to figure out what that is, what that means, and who she is within that. Um, can you tell us? You've named the character. Well, you haven't named the character. She is she is simply girl. Uh, what does that mean? What does that mean for her? Um, I think there are two meanings to that name. Uh, one is that I'm Malaysian Chinese, just like my character, and. In our family cultures, it's pretty normal to, in English, even though we might be speaking Chinese other times, to call your son boy, to call your daughter girl, and just kind of be named by your gender in that way, which is really, really rude in English. But in our culture, it's like a really a term of endearment. And I kind of loved that and wanted to put that into the book without necessarily explaining it. Um, I also think there's something you know very universal about the name girl. It's like you could be any girl or every girl, um, and it being a story that's about you know canon and being excluded from canon. I found that to be a way of including yourself in canon and kind of taking on the mantle of universi- universality onto yourself. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It kind of it perfectly captures um, the the sort of the two main themes that are like jostling with each other in this book I think uh who she is sort of in relation to her um her work and who she is in relation to her family um can you tell us you know I guess in some ways this is kind of a classic college novel because it is about this woman's sort of journey to to finding herself um can you tell us a bit about like why uh 
why the college novel, I suppose, is like a classic genre and something that you wanted to explore for your first work? Yeah, oh, I love campus novels so much. Um, I love On Beauty by Zadie Smith. I love The Idiot by Elif Butterman. I love Real Life by Brandon Taylor. Mm. Um, I love, and I loved school novels as a kid, so I think it's just an extension of that. Um, I think what I like about the campus novel and what I was doing with the figure of girl is she's kind of a nay for like an ingenue character and it's just very much about what it means to grow up on a campus and to begin to know so very much about, you know, a lot of different theories and what it means to write a post-colonial novel, but to not know very much about the world or what you are inside it. And I love that kind of mix of kind of like precociousness and kind of like naivety that you kind of get in those novels and that kind of like funny stupidity you get from being that kind of person as well as that smartness you get yeah absolutely when you're a total box ticker and you're looking around for prizes (laughs) and you're kind of entering the end of that phase where the prizes (laughs) don't necessarily exist and you've got these yeah very very funny very very clever women kind of with their eyes darting around going is this right I don't know yeah (laughs) um can can you tell us I guess um so she goes away um and she goes she goes to Scotland to do to do this fellowship and in a way um Oh, there's a few places where I want to go with this. I suppose she she goes away to write this novel and she goes away to become herself and as you said she's kind of a naif or an ingenue um but she wants to be the main character in her story as we all want to be um and so she's trying to write this story and she says you know towards the end of the book that she's got this pitch this kind of tried and true pitch that she gives to people about you know always um people have always being Esther Greenwood or people are you know like identifying with these characters and now she wants people to read and know what it's like to be her um which is a fantastic pitch but then she doesn't really go any further than that. <laughs> um, how does she go about recovering or um, identifying or articulating her own story? Yeah, I think that, I mean, we all know the phrase main character energy. And I think mm. Girl is a serious case of like side character energy mm. where she is kind of accepting that kind of passive role, that kind of sense of nothing happening and that kind of sense of being almost external to this plot that she imagines is going on in the world without her. And I think that by kind of accepting that role and almost leaning into it, she kind of, it creates a kind of its own characterization and its own kind of storytelling in a sense. So there's that kind of bit where, um, you know, she's talking about Esther and Anna Karenina and there's this kind of self-importance to that. And I think when she starts to accept kind of a lack of self-importance, a kind of inherent weakness in novel writing itself, in being an artist and being who she is, I think that there's a kind of sense that, she becomes her own character in that moment, I suppose. Yeah. Mm. Can you talk to us about Sylvia Plath and about her relationship with with Sylvia Plath? Yeah. Um, so The Bell Jar is just, you know, one of the most wonderful novels ever. I just love it. Um, I could read it so many times and there's so many different things you can say about it that are so beautiful. Um, and, of course, Plath's poetry is also very, very amazing. Um, I think Girl's relationship with Plath is that she's kind of like a – she kind of objectifies Plath in a sense, in the same way that she sees Plath objectify people that look like her in the book. So as there's this kind of two-way dance occurring, she kind of sees her as a way of a vehicle and a way of expressing herself um, and kind of is using her in that way. It's that very kind of like I-it relationship rather than I-thou. And then she finds that 
Plus does the same thing to her in the book, which is mm-hmm. this amazing kind of mirrored reality. Um, and I think when she realizes that she's kind of treating Plath in that way, as so many women have done before her, as so many people have done before her, um, she kind of learns something about herself towards in the novel. And I think that's like a really important part of it to me. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. When she's away on this fellowship, she's kind of, um, you know, she's lumped in with a bunch of other um, artists and creative people and she fosters this kind of quite... Um, I want to say unusual, but I don't. I don't think it is a particularly un- <laughs> unusual relationship, actually. But uh, a relationship with an artist, a painter named Clementine, and Clementine is maybe ten years older than her, or a little bit older with her, uh, older than her, and kind of infatuated with her, I think, in a way, and is quite cruel to her um, whenever they're in public. Seems kind of hell bent on undermining her or, or making her feel small. But then there's a real tenderness to their friendship when um, girl sits for Clementine and they spend this, you know, long stints of quiet time together and girl 100% ignores her own needs, doesn't work on her own work, um, has, you know, um, some pretty serious back pain and some, uh, some things happening with her body that she completely ignores in order to service this person. Tell us about this sort of competitive, tender friendship at the heart of this novel. I mean, as you said, it's not particularly unusual. I think all women have had this friendship at some point. Um, and I think it's also, for me, about girl in so many areas of her life is very complicit in her own self-destruction and why it is that she's drawn to kind of allowing those kinds of relationships to occur. And I think that's a young person's thing. I think you don't really know what's wrong with what's going on and you don't really believe yourself. Um, and I think that's very much part of the age she is in in the novel. Um, and... It's just a relationship that I think is, I think, pretty emblematic of a lot of, like, those early 20s female friendships where it's extremely close. It seems closer than almost any other relationship could be, and yet it's extremely kind of difficult and uh, ungenuine in other ways as well. Mm. Um, So, yeah, I think it's a way of Clementine becoming this kind of alternate plath figure Mm. this kind of like bad girl that girl can kind of live through through watching and for clementine girl becomes this kind of like good girl figure that she can kind of watch and kind of live through and despise and this is kind of tension between how they both see the world and how they both want to go about living in the world yeah and there's there's an element I, I could be really wrong here I'm really interested in what you say but there's an element of kind of uh, revenge or something on behalf of girl in the fact that she's written this highly highly introverted novel um, <laughs> after the fact you know and yeah. so she can make these kind of um, clipped comments on on the clothes that Clementine's <laughs> wearing or on the way that she conducts herself and it's all you know um, you kind of get the sense of uh, of girl being um, you know, a, obliging or good-humoured and kind of banking everything. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah, she's a bad girl deep down, maybe. I quite, yeah. enjo- I quite enjoyed that. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Um, my friends and I have a saying that we're, like, too punk to go to the tote and I feel like it's the same kind of energy, you know, no one knows. Um, tell us about... Tell us about the act of writing the book because um, it is it is an... Um, it is a very introverted sort of novel and a lot of it is about documenting what is happening in girls' 
uh, in in her head and in her mind and in her dreams and the space between what is what is really happening to her versus what she she imagined it's kind of it's quite heartbreaking in some ways because there's this sense of disappointment that hums over it you know when you move from girlhood to becoming a woman she has these moments of reflection where she's like oh it's just sort of recognizing that these these doors close and things aren't aren't what you thought they would be yeah. Um, so writing the novel, I think writing any novel is a pretty introverted act, at least to me. Um, I had written some version of it during my PhD years. Um, and then I rewrote all, all of it during lockdown in 2021, like the really hard one we had where you could barely do anything. Mm. And so I think that the, the introversion in it might come from that even. Um, and I think I, you're very right and that's an introvert's novel in that I think introverts always, like, they have the comeback, like, three hours later, mm. but they kind of, like, don't say it at the time. And so it's that observational consciousness that's kind of, like, there's a mask of goodwill, as you said, and then there's kind of, like, all this other stuff going on underneath. And um, it's also a very cerebral and kind of theoretical and essayistic novel in that way because I kind of – I had written a very different novel initially, one where there was a lot of action – and one that where all of that kind of happens under the surface of the novel. And I want to bring that all up to the surface because I felt like I was writing a novel that was kind of like knew less than me. And I feel like I wanted the novel to know everything I knew. Yeah. Yeah, I get that. It's a very reaching novel. And because um, a lot of a lot of the action does hum under the surface, it forces you to to take a good look at yourself as well, you know, like to, to sort of loop back to that, that main character energy that we were talking about and girls' aspirations to be the main character in her life. When you think about her foiled attempts at that, you know, like when she dresses as Annie Hall for the America party and everybody in the room mistakes her as being like the token Asian character in a college movie and that's not her intention at all, you know, when things like that happen... And they just sit there and then they move along. You're, you know, you're, you're paused to look, at, to look at yourself and to look at what is happening and to look at what, what belongs to girl and what we as a culture need to sort of take some responsibility for, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah. Um, tell us about... Tell us about Girl's Family um, because Girl's Family are... Um, so front and centre in this novel, but they're also they're also in a different country. She's left them behind completely, and it's like the family her family is coming is coming to her as she's as she's attempting to kind of spread her wings or, or be away from them in a way. Yeah, I think this novel is very much the opposite of a lot of the things that it kind of like tries to be. So it's like a kind of it's a buildings roman about your family being there and very present. Where most buildings roman novels are kind of about like moving beyond the family, beyond the home. It's a concert Ramon where art making doesn't really happen. Mm. She doesn't actually do any work. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And it's a canvas novel set off canvas. So um, in that way, I think I want to think about the shape of the Buildings Roman as a very like that dramatic kind of very Western, very anocentric, um, Eurocentric kind of form and kind of revamp it and think about it as how would someone from a kind of collectivist culture, from a very family-oriented culture, rewrite that kind of form of novel. Mm. Um, and so that's why the family is very central and yet kind of there's this tension where they're off to the side as well. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's fantastic the way it sort of um, plays with and, like, 
not thwarts your expectations, but but certainly plays with them and does so with such incredible uh, good humour. I find it it's quite a funny novel, you know. <laughs> like it's um, and I think that I think that the play uh, with Sylvia Plath, with the way that they kind of both. Um, antagonise each other or use each other and the way that that gets mucked around with as well when when girl is in high school and she has this teacher that that everybody kind of worships who is um who is a very he's a very dangerous very dangerous man um and when she tries to point out that that Plath is actually quite quite funny and and she's not given any room to do that it's it's explosive and exciting yeah I'm so glad you said that. I'm waiting for someone to find the book funny. I mean, my friends and people around me do, but it's it's really rare for someone to understand that it's not just the super serious kind of melancholy novel. Oh, I think it's really, yeah. I think it's really funny, and she's kind of walking around laughing a lot. I think you know, yeah. or or will in time. She just yeah. needs a little bit more time, <laughs> and she will. Um, can you tell us about writing about writing those scenes where you know where your young character this you know, this striving person who is fiercely intelligent knocks up against the very real knowledge of what is expected of them in a situation and what they need to do in order to have a kind of personal integrity? Yeah, I think that's so difficult and so hard because as a young person, you've got your own kind of stuff going on. And I think that on top of that, when you realise that there's the kind of like what Lauren Berlant calls like cruel optimism, those kinds of myths that success and happiness and that all of those things are there so long as you work hard enough, but that belief is just an obstacle to your actual striving or your attaining of those things. And you're starting to, growing up is kind of realising those things aren't really real. Um, I think there's a real cruelty to that. And I think girl is really willing to kind of like, squeeze herself into any shape possible in order to attain that um and so there's a sense of like she's kind of a coward and she's kind of really passive but there's also the compassion for that because you can sort of see what she's not up against and how little she little agency she feels she has in a lot of these decisions and a lot of these spaces yeah yeah absolutely um if you've just tuned in uh this is literati glitterati on triple r and we are joined in the studio by jessica zanmayu who is the author of a fantastic debut novel called but the girl uh it's out now through penguin um and you can pick it up from any independent bookshop or from the library if you like i would highly recommend that you do thank you so much for tuning in and thank you also to max easton and his fantastic book paradise estate we talked to max earlier in the show and you should absolutely check that one out too thanks thank you thanks for listening to the podcast of literati glitterati a weekly book show that loves a good story well told literati glitterati is broadcast live on triple r each wednesday from midday to 1 p.m hope you've enjoyed the podcast and please feel free to keep in touch at rrr.org.au